0: Well, thank you very much. Um, It's um, nice to be the last speaker in a post-launch session. Um, You can get away with some things. I wonder what I will get away with. Basically, what I try to do is to look at the relationship between the United Nations and the African Union in terms of the partnerships for peacekeeping and peace support operations. And when I refer to the United Nations here, I'm talking about the United Nations Security Council. And when I talk about the African Union, I broadly refer to the Peace and Security Council of the African Union. One of the things the United Nations declares in Chapter 8 is its ambition to cooperate with regional organizations in the quest to promote international peace and security. Since the end of the Cold War, Africa has been one of the leading partners of the, African, uh, of the United Nations in this regard. And why is Africa so important? Well, for some strange reasons, not unconnected to the legacy of the Cold War. Africa had so many conflicts immediately after the war and so as, far, uh, as recent as 2011, the statistics show that 68% of all the deliberations at the UN Security Council were on Africa. And in terms of the largest peacekeeping operations in the world, the three and soon to be the fourth largest peacekeeping operations by the UN are in Africa. So you can say that Africa is a good customer of the United Nations. But what do we want to do in this paper? We want to examine the nature of this relationship. What is the relationship between the United Nations and the African Union? What is the implication of that relationship? And what challenges does it face? And then I begin to make some tentative conclusions by the end of my 20 minutes. Two authors I'm going to quote here. One is Tim Murithi. He describes the relationship between the African Union and the United Nations as either a hybrid partnership or hybrid paternalism. Another author, Adeba Jouadikeye, says it's all about global apartheid, where Africa is discriminated against by powerful powers, or rather where Africa is marginalised by powerful powers. I will take a middle course and say that sometimes it appears to be like paternalism, but sometimes it appears to be like a true partnership, and like all partnerships, and believe me, those of you who have been married for a long time in this room know that, like all partnerships, It is not entirely free of tensions. Now let me go one step forward and look at the background issues. Why is it so important? I think that between 2002, when the African Union was formed till date, there has been a rapid development of the partnership between the UN and the African Union. Indeed, in 2006, both organisations signed an agreement in which the UN was supposed to do capacity building between 2006 and 2016 for the, the African Union. You also see that a lot of the peacekeeping operations that were started by African regional organizations, some of them were taken over by the United Nations, as in the case of Liberia, Sierra Leone, Darfur, and also, recently, Mali. So you can see that, to a large extent, there has been a very close partnership between both organizations. Yet, as I said, it is not tension free. Why is this the case? My argument is that it is an unequal partnership between a global organization that is very well resourced and has a track record of being founded in 1948 and an African organization that has challenges of capacity and resources that came into existence in 2002. When you look at the, the relationship between both of them, I try to identify some of the areas of tensions. I think the first area of tension is the whole question of Africa trying to assert its autonomy and having a rather different perspective as to the role of the United Nations in crisis in Africa. The African Union sees itself as the natural institution to address all conflicts and crises in Africa, both for reasons of legitimacy, for reasons of proximity, and for reasons of cost and sees the role of the United Nations as being a party that helps. But the United Nations sees itself as being responsible for international peace and security, of which Africa is a part. Now, to make it even more complicated, Africa expects that the United Nations should foot the bill for peace support operations and peacekeeping operations without having a say exactly how they want those resources to be used. So this is a particularly touchy issue. The other question has to do with the kind of interactions that you have between people sitting down in New York and coming to Africa and people in Addis Ababa, those who are the officials and the bureaucrats. But more fundamentally is what I consider to be The contradictions within Africa itself, you can call them intra-Africa contradictions, both in terms of the institutional gaps that the African Union has and in the competing interests of African countries. Now you can begin to imagine what this means for UNAU cooperation. How How can we prove that it has any impact? I take one step back and say that one of the problems, of course, as I alluded to earlier, is that AU has a weak bureaucracy, and it has logistical and financial challenges. So therefore, it is dependent not just on the United Nations, but also on external donors for a lot of its activities, particularly as they relate to peacekeeping and peace support. And to go back to the presenter before me, How then can Africa own its peace-building agenda in the context of this kind of partnership where it is externally dependent? But in spite of this picture that I paint, there are successes. As I said, there have been cases in which you have had hybrid UN-AU forces, peacekeeping forces. You've You've also had cases in which regional troops or forces have been supported by the United Nations and external partners. But when you look at certain cases, you begin to understand why there is so much attention on this relationship. Some of the things that the United Nations has been doing have been called to question. For example, the whole question of neutrality. When you look at the case of Cote d'Ivoire, when United Nation- UNOCHI, the United Nations Mission in Côte d'Ivoire, and French forces took a, a sitting president who had lost elections out and took him to The Hague. Some people have argued that by working with French and a faction of the Ivorian army, that the UN had taken sides. The same accusation was also made in the case of Libya that the UN probably played into the hands of NATO, particularly the Security Council, and used the cover of humanitarian intervention to carry out an agenda of regime change. Not minding that the leading powers from Africa actually voted in the Security Council resolution that eventually was implemented. But that is another story. But again, it gives you a good idea of the problems even within Africa as we look at some of these things. I will go quickly and look at, in some detail, what the challenges have been. As I said earlier, part of the problem is the problem of capacity. But also, there is a problem of a third layer that in Africa is not just the African Union that participates in peace building or peace and security. There is a third layer, which are the sub-regional groups. In the case of West Africa, you have the economic community of West African states, which actually you would say is the most sophisticated and actually most forward-looking of the sub-regional organizations that has participated and pioneered peacekeeping operations at the sub-regional level. And it is quite interesting that two of its operations in West Africa actually got UN support and their peacekeepers were reheated But then there could be tensions, as you will see, between ECOWAS and the African Union. And again, I will go back to La Côte d'Ivoire to tell you a bit of how this happened. In Côte d'Ivoire, there was an election in 2010 in which the sitting president, was defeated, but he refused to acknowledge defeat. The UN special representative, the special representative of the Secretary General of the UN endorsed the result. That result was upheld by ECOWAS, but the President refused to acknowledge and basically a war started. Another war started, a war that had, you know, that had waged, that had raged and had been stopped, resumed what you will find out was that within ECOWAS, there were divisions. While some countries like Nigeria, Burkina Faso, and Senegal supported Alassane Ouattara, who was also supported by France. Some countries like Angola and South Africa supported Laurent Gbagbo, who was the person who ostensibly lost elections. And this caused so much delay, and as the process dragged on, people were being killed. It wasn't until France and UNOCI took the step of going into the presidential palace to take a hold of Bagbo that the situation was brought under control. But the fact that the UN directly involved itself in that kind of operation led some people to argue that this is not what the UN is supposed to do because the UN is supposed to be neutral. But when you go on and look at the kind of support that the UN has given the AU mission in Somalia, or AMISOM, you begin to see elements of success. When you look at the situation in Burundi, you begin to see elements of success. What you don't see is how the AU is able to influence the agenda of the UN. Indeed, as I said, the AU has this cat and mouse relationship with the African Union, in which the AU believes that the UN is out to dictate terms. But the UN thinks that the AU would not put its money where its mouth is and expects to have ownership. We still go back to the whole question of ownership. But is it true that the UN is no longer neutral? I think that we have to take a case-by-case approach to this. But more interestingly is the accusation that the UN appears to be moving towards more peace enforcement kind of operations, In Africa. Two examples. The first is the example of the special squad that has just been approved to operate in Eastern Congo to deal with some troublesome militias in Eastern DRC. Another one is the endorsement of the Great Lakes Initiative to go after LRA rebels in in, uh, in Central African Republic and in any any of those countries. People are saying whether this does not represent a new and perhaps dangerous precedent in which the UN appears to be going beyond its traditional mandate and norms. But the question you should ask is, what does the African Union think about this? It appears that the African Union is gradually imbibing some of the notions of the U.N., while at the same time asserting its role as what I would consider to be the, the people who should take action on the ground. So if you like, you can say it's a question of the U.N. pace and the AU plays. Uh, That seems to be the division of labor that is emerging out of the entire process. You begin to see the same thing in Mali, which was once respected as a model democracy in West Africa. But as I would provocatively say, Mali was a paper democracy. It was a democracy on paper, in name but the democratic roots were very shallow. And the proof of that was the ease with which the coup take, took place and parts of the country were overrun by uh, militias. Now, when you look at what has happened, first of all, ECOWAS mobilized some troops with endorsement from the African Union called AFISMA, AFISMA only woke up when France deployed early in January or February this year at the invitation of the Mali government to send the rebels out of the northern cities because it was believed that they were going to capture the capital of Mali, Bamako. Now, immediately that happened, ECOWAS rushed in troops But within weeks, it was discovered that those troops did not have the necessary logistics, and they were financially on a very thin uh, budget. There was a lot of pressure on the UN to intervene. And the same pattern you would see as only on April 25, the UN now approved what is the fourth largest UN mission which is also going to re African peacekeepers, another hybrid force. So as you can see, there is a lot of progress that is taking place in terms of partnerships. Both organizations at the level of institutional cooperation have been able to come up with a lot of agreements over the years. And they are getting coherence increasingly over the, as uh, with, with, with each crisis, they seem to be having better coherence. But the fundamental problem still remains that they have not reached a consensus over what their exact rules should be, even within that partnership. Secondly, the AU still continues to be an unequal partner with all its ramifications and implications. The UN, in partnering with the AU, which has a slightly different normative framework, hinged upon human security and hinged upon non-indifference to non-indifference to, uh, to, to, to sovereignty, means that sometimes in the bid to partner with the African Union, the UN sometimes goes beyond what it traditionally does. This has implications, but when you consider the broader securitization of peace building in Africa, you can begin to understand why this is taking place. To conclude, I know I have just two minutes. To conclude, the UN has an office in the AU and the AU has an office in the U.N. They meet regularly as organizations either once or twice a year. So there is a dialogue and there is a process taking place. However, the inequality between the United Nations and the African Union continues to pose a challenge. And the question is partly compounded by the fact that the United Nations Security Council perhaps needs to have a permanent African member. It has non-permanent members. So who really represents Africa's interests in the UN Security Council, particularly within the P5? If its interest is not regarded, the UN has some leverage at its apex policy making body which is beyond, perhaps, the reach of the African Union. And so what you have is a tale of two fiddlers, one playing first fiddle, the other playing second fiddle. And I guess you know who's playing first fiddle, and you know who's playing second fiddle. I thank you for your attention.